right. Well, students, welcome back to the College Conference Message 2 this morning. I'm so glad to be here. I thought what Paul shared last night uh, from John chapter 8 was so and was so freeing to see how powerful, how powerful Christ is as the great I am. Religion powerless to set us free from sin, but Christ comes and he's the life that says, go and sin no more. So wonderful. Okay, so now we're going to come to John 9 and 10. But, uh, but, you know, like Paul said, we're on the Gospel of John part three. And so John has these cases arranged one by one to show, to prove that Jesus is the Christ and that we would believe that he's the Christ and have life in his name. So these cases that we're on this spring semester, there's three cases and they're actually the last three cases and they're somewhat negative. You know, the first six cases were somewhat positive, but yesterday we had John 8, the need of those in sin and bondage to be set free. This morning we come to John 9 and 10, the need of the blind in religion, life's sight and life's shepherding. So with John 9, we're mainly going to see life-giving sight, and then we'll go on to John 10 to see life's shepherding. And then tonight, we'll see the need of the dead, the need of the dead. So these three things, the sin, blindness, and death, what we can say is that they are the basic condition of fallen man. And, uh, you know, this, this gospel, it arranges these cases to show us that life meets the need of every man. God's life meets my every need. I love this phrase. You know what we need? We need the divine life. Students in college, what do you need? You need the divine life. You don't need improvement. You don't need ethics. You need the divine life. That alone will meet your need. I hope we're so convinced by this this weekend. And, you know, John is emphasizing life to the uttermost. You know, in Greek, there are three different words for life. There's bios for our biological life. There's there's suke for our psychological life, but then there's this word zoe, this word zoe. This is the divine, uncreated life of God. And John is replete with the use of this word zoe. I have come that they may have zoe and may have it abundantly. I am the way, the reality, and the zoe. He who follows me shall have the zoe of life. What we need is the divine life. And I hope we see this, that, you know, this gospel, it presents this to us as our need. You know, this book uses this word 38 times, something like 38 times. The other three gospels, they only use this word Zoe about 10 times or less. So John's emphasis is that we would see life will meet our need. Okay, so let's come now to John 9, 1 through 7. And what I'm going to do, I'm just going to go ahead and read this. And uh, it says, as he passed by. He saw a man blind from birth. Now, I'm reading from our outline. If you haven't downloaded it, go ahead and pull that up. You can follow along with me. We'll be going through these verses. It says, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, neither has this man sinned, nor his parents, but he was born so that the works of God might be manifested in him. And, you know, you just think about that's kind of a funny question. How could the man sin when he was in his mother's womb, right? I mean, that's impossible. But that's the, the thing here is people's concept is right or wrong, yes or no, tree of knowledge. But Jesus is bringing us back to the tree of life because life alone will meet this man's need. So he was born so that the works of God might be manifested in him. 
We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground. He goes, spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and anointed his eyes with the clay. And he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is interpreted sent. He went therefore and washed and came away seeing. Okay, now I want you to underline, if you can, this little phrase at the end of verse two, born blind, because that's our first point. We have to show you, we have to prove that all of us, all fallen human beings are born blind. We're blind from birth. You know, there's a difference from going blind and being uh, born blind. I was looking it up, so I mean, you know, because we might wonder, does this case really relate to me? I can identify with sin. I know I have sin, but blindness, I've never been blind. And it's not that common. You know, it's like I was looking it up. Maybe a rough estimate is one out of every 250 people in America are blind. And that includes they went blind. You know, my aunt is a is a dear believer in the Lord, but she, you know, lost her sight in her 20s. She described it like her world over a period of years, you know, closed in until eventually just a little pinpoint of light. But they asked these type of people who lost their sight, you know, in your dreams, do you still have sight? Do you still have vision? And she said, you know, they've asked these people and they say, yes, in my dreams, I still I'm a seeing person. I have full vision. But someone who's born blind, they ask them, if you're born blind, this is much more rare. It's about one in 10,000. It's much more rare. And they say, in our dreams, we still, we don't have sight. We interact with our dream world using our other four senses. We, we have seeing, I mean, sorry, we have taste, touch, smelling, hearing, but we have no sight. And, you know, if you're born blind, you have no concept of sight. You don't know what colors are. I was watching this one YouTube video of this man who was born blind describing it. And he said, um, he said, I know you describe colors, but to me, they mean nothing. You say the sky is blue, but then you also say ice is blue. And to me, I'm like, how could the sky and ice be the same color? They're very different things. He has no concept of sight. And that's how we are in the things of God by birth. We have no concept, no ability to see God, to see the divine things. We're, we're born blind. So I want to convince you by birth. There you are, Timothy Liao. There you are. See, what is that? Uh, watch party there in College Station. By birth, we were born blind. We were born blind. Okay, you may not be convinced, so I've got three points here to try to go through this. And this is uh, what A, oh, let me read these verses here. Um, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in whom the God of this age has what? Blinded the thoughts of the unbelievers. So our, it's not our physical sight, it's our spiritual sight. The God of this age is very good at deceiving, defrauding, and blinding our thoughts so that the gospel the illumination of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God, might not shine on them. So this is what's going on. And then even Paul in Acts 26, 18, he said he's commissioned, the first thing of his commission, to open their eyes, to, to lead them from darkness to light. I used to think that this word open their eyes meant to show them more than they had ever seen. But no, it actually means before he got there, blind. Before he got there, eyes are sealed, no seeing, no vision. So this is our commission. Okay, well, what are people blind in? A, blind to our source, destiny, and meaning of our life. You just consider your source. You know, if you hear someone say, we came here, humans arose because there was a prebiotic soup. And at one point, you know, 
lightning struck that soup and somehow amino acids started randomly joining together to form proteins and then kind of single-celled organisms. Then what? Then fish formed over a long period of time and then they grew legs and they became amphibians and then some of them grew wings and became birds and then some of them stood erect and became mammals and eventually, you know, you have Ty Wilson. No, that is darkness. That is blindness. That is not how we got here. People are blind to our source. About 12 years ago, the Texas Board of Education was voting on whether or not to continue teaching the strengths and weaknesses of the theory of evolution. You know what they decided? They heard expert testimony from both sides, but expert testimony from the Darwinian camp said, there are no weaknesses to the theory of evolution. That's what they said. <laughs> In a, you know, it's like they're confident of this theory, which has a lot of weaknesses. I'll just give you two. What, how do people explain the origin of biological information? How do you explain that in a single cell, in a single cell, there is what, 3 billion pairs of DNA? I'm not a scientist. I'm just, from my layman research, it's apparent that DNA is encoded in all life. And that did not arise by chance. You know, if you were to go into a cave and you were to find uh, strange symbols on the wall of the cave and you were, you know, first time explorer, no one's ever seen this. You're in that cave and, you know, it's like hieroglyphs or some little cave painting. Would you say, well, that just arose by chance. That just, those got there just by chance. No, we wouldn't say it, but that's what people are saying. There is so much information just in one human being. I looked this up. There are, there is something like 150 zettabytes of data to comprise one human being's cells. So what does that mean? Well, that's hundreds of thousands of times more data, more encoded biological information in your body than is in all of Google, all of Amazon, all of Facebook. The whole internet doesn't contain as much information as God put into you. So how could you think it arises by chance? That is blindness. Brothers, where did we come from? Who had the wisdom to produce us? What is our origin? It's clear in the scriptures, Matthew 10, 30. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. The Lord, the God, the creator of the universe, who could easily number our hairs, and not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from him. He alone formed us. He alone created us. We did not arise by chance. But people are blind to him. So they just come up with all kinds of thoughts. Okay, what about our destiny? What about our destiny? People are blind to their destiny. And there's a lot of thoughts. I would just say one of the main ones that we encounter is the thought that there is no meaning, no, sorry, no reality apart from, apart from matter. There's just atoms bouncing around. So that, that would mean in that worldview that when the, the synapses in my brain stop firing, my destiny is to just cease existing. Brothers, this is blindness. But the reason people have this thought and are attracted to it, it removes all accountability. It removes all accountability. And that's what people are worried about. I have this one picture to show you. And the brothers here will have to help me know if I'm getting it right. But basically, this is a bus. And you can't see the wheels. But they printed up this uh, this ad, they, they did this advertising campaign and the campaign was printed and put on buses in 2009 in England. And it's just big letters. It says, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. 
oh my goodness, this is an advertising campaign from darkness. And what, but it's so clear in this campaign what the what the emphasis here is. If there were a God, we'd have to worry. We'd have to be accountable. So we like to stick our head in the sand and say, there's probably not a God so we can enjoy our life. Brothers, this is darkness. I would, like, I would just like to say there definitely is a God. Now start believing and enjoy his life. Oh, this is so good. We are not those who are blind anymore because Christ has come. We want to enjoy his life. Okay, now what about the meaning of our life? We're blind if we have never contacted God. The meaning of, of our life is a big unanswered question. No one knows. Only by contacting Christ and being brought into his purpose can we fulfill that eternity which is put into our hearts. Only by contacting him can the meaning of our life be clear. Okay, so I think we're convinced. But what about the things of God? Now, okay, let me read this. Ephesians 2.12. People by, death, by default are apart from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is the basic condition of mankind. And when, when you think of God and you're blind, when you're trying to conceive of God, you cannot find him. So we have here Acts 17, 26 and 27. Let me read it to you. And this is describing how God made from one every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth that they might seek God, now listen to this, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, even though he's not far from each one of us. Why are they groping for him if he's not far from them? That's because they are blind. They're trying like a blind person to find God, the things of God. And then in John 3, 3, Jesus says this. He says, I say to you, unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I want you to underline, cannot see the kingdom of God. The things of the kingdom of God, the things of God, namely Jesus himself and the church are are hidden from people in their natural state. And it's it's really sad. It's really sad that this is our case. And I would liken it. You could liken it to a blind person in this physical universe being completely blind to the beauty that God has endowed this physical universe with and. You know, I was in the Caribbean one time on a sailing vessel. It was a catamaran. And I was, and they told us we we're in the middle of nowhere. We were all told, okay, look up. It's a clear night sky. Now we're going to turn off all the lights. And then, woof, they turn off all the lights and all of these stars were there. It was incredible to see. But if you had been blind in that situation, it would have been lost on you. Well, I would describe this. All of us like this. All of us are like a blind person, blind to the heavenly vision, blind to the divine vistas of revelation, blind to what there is to see in the kingdom of God. So brothers and sisters, I hope you're convinced. I hope you're convinced we're born blind and we need someone to come. We need someone to give us sight. So this is what happened in this case. Now let's take a look. How is Jesus going to give sight to this blind man? Okay, let's come to Roman numeral two. And um, it says here in John 9, 5, I am the light of the world. And then in John 1, 4, he says, in him, it says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And i just like to read you a few other verses from John, because he had a strong emphasis, not only on life, but also on light. We need light. And in John 1, 5, it says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. In John 1, 9, he says, 
this is the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And John 3.19 is where a choice comes in. A choice comes in to every single man. This is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light, for their works were evil. Men loved darkness rather than the light, for their works were evil. John 9.5, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And then he heals that blind man. And then the Pharisees interact with that healed blind man in John, in John chapter 9. And in John 9, Jesus has an interaction with the Pharisees. And he says this in 39 and 41. He says, for judgment, I've come into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things. And they said, we are not blind also, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. So it all comes down to our reaction to Jesus coming to us. The Pharisees wanted to say, we, we're not blind, we see. But that left them with no salvation, with their sin, in blindness. In Revelation 3, 17 and 18, Jesus is speaking to the church in Laodicea. He says, you say, I'm wealthy, I've become rich, I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor and blind and naked. And he says, I counsel you to buy from me eye salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. So the choice is here. The choice is here in this section. Will we receive Jesus's healing? And brothers, I hope we don't say, I already know this. I already heard this. I hope we don't say, I already see. I hope we say, Lord, I do not see. Lord, come to me, anoint my eyes and lead me to salvation and lead me to sight. Okay, now let's take a look at what Jesus did, does here in John 9, 6. He says, I'm the light of the world. And then he said, okay, and then he did this. I'm the light of the world. And he spat on the ground. And you're like, are you the light of the world? That was low. You know, it just doesn't compute. But it says in 9, 6, he spat on the ground. And well, how do we, how, how do we, how do we handle this? We have to realize John is a book of signs. John's a book of signs. So this is very symbolic. And we're going to take a look at this. He spat on the ground and made clay and anointed his eyes with the clay. Okay, so what does all this mean? Well, what does the clay signify there? The clay, ground, that signifies our humanity. We have that in point one. In Romans 9.21, it says, For does not the potter have authority over the clay to make out of the same lump of clay one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? So God's saying, humanity is clay to me. I have authority to make the humanity, the clay, different kinds of vessels. So we're the clay. Well, what is the spittle? This one's a little bit harder. The spittle comes out of his mouth. Okay, in Matthew 4.4, what else comes out of his mouth? Matthew 4.4 says, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word which proceeds out through the mouth of God. So the, the spittle there symbolizes his words which proceed out of his mouth. And then in John 60, 63, he says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words which I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. So what we can say is that the spittle that comes out of his mouth is his word, which is spirit and life. And so what this means is that his word needs to mingle with us. His word, which is spirit and life, needs to hit our humanity. We need to receive his word. And it needs to be mingled with us, not just in one ear and out the other, but he spat on the ground and made clay with that mixture, with that mingling. 
That's why we need the Bible. That's why we emphasize pray reading the Bible, not just reading the Bible, but when you come to the word, come with your spirit exercised to take the word as spirit. And that's where the mingling takes place. Otherwise, you have no sight. You could read the Bible in a college course, a secular course, New Testament studies or something, and have no revelation. Be blind as ever. That's why we need to pray read. When we come to the word, we need to say, Lord, my heart is turning to you. Lord, mingle your divine essence with me. Lord, you can even say, Lord, spit all over me. I know it sounds funny, but Lord, I want to get your divine essence all over me. Mingle with me. And also with the spoken word, with the written word and the spoken word. When we hear messages, we want to say, Lord, speak to me. Lord, infuse me with your divine essence. Okay, that's the first point. Now, after that, that produces a prevailing ointment. I like this, a prevailing ointment. This ointment is prevailing. It indicates there's kind of a little struggle that comes here. That's because the anointing comes and the anointing has a little bit of a will that it brings to us, a little bit of a teaching. And we might have a little resistance, but it's going to prevail. Let it prevail. So let's take a look at 1 John 2, 27. As for you, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone teach you. But as his anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and even as it has taught you, abide in him. So I want you to underline in that phrase, John, uh, in John 9, 6, that phrase, anointed his eyes. And what is the anointing? The anointing is the spirit of life moving in you. It's the, uh, it's the ointment moving. It's the moving of the divine spirit in you. He didn't just dab his eyes with clay. He anointed his eyes with clay. Okay, and then this, this results in point C that causes us to have to obey this anointing, to wash away the old man. So point C says, we receive sight by obeying this anointing to what? To wash away the old man. Now you have to follow me here in this type. Jesus in John 9, 7 said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is interpreted sent. And he went therefore and washed and came away seeing. So if that blind man had not obeyed that, that teaching, that instruction right there, he would have said clay on his eyes. He would have been blinder than ever. But thank the Lord, he obeyed the Lord's word. He went and washed off the clay. He washed off the clay. Now, that's the washing away of the old man. Our old man is hanging on. Our old man is, is keeping us. It's been crucified, but it's keeping us from making progress. It's keeping us from seeing more. So we need to constantly wash it off, wash it off. And this word Siloam, go wash in the pool of Siloam, this word means sent. And it's the, actually in Greek, it means to be sent on a mission. So the mission that the Lord sent him to, sent him on, was to go and wash in the pool. And when you're on a mission, no longer are you free to sightsee, to do your own will. You have to do the will of the one who sent you. That's where the anointing comes in. That's where the prevailing comes in. Because every time the Lord sends us on a mission, we have a little hesitation. We have our own will. He says, go. We say no. But we have to learn to let the Lord win, stand with this mission, stand with the sending, and we will see. Okay, now what does this mean? The first, the first meaning here of going to wash in the pool, it actually symbolizes going to wash in the waters of baptism going to be baptized. This is actually, for many of us, this is our first step of obeying the inward anointing such that it would contradict our natural 
choice, our own preference. And I just want to give you my own experience. When I was uh, in college in 2004, uh, this exact conference was the topic at the fall 2004 college conference here with Christian students on campus. I was, I was there. It was, uh, I was in the back row. And this exact message was being shared actually by Neil Wolfson. And he was saying, you know, the, the Lord is telling you, go wash in the water of baptism. And then he started to say, and we have observed that those who do not get baptized, those who hear that, but then don't obey that teaching, they have a very hard time. It's very, very difficult for them to make progress in the Christian life. And when I started to hear that, I started to get convicted because the Lord was speaking to me, you need to get baptized. And what did I do? I had a lot of excuses. I think we make too many excuses to keep the clay on our eyes. I said, Lord, no, I don't want to do that. I was okay to show up and be on the back row of these things, but I had never outwardly publicly obeyed the anointing so much. So I said, no, Lord, I got baptized when I was a little kid. And I did. But what that was, that was just everyone else was doing it at that time. I didn't have any reality. I just needed to check that box. So I told my mom, mom, I need to go and get baptized. And, you know, I got baptized, but it was evident from my life after that, that in high school, junior high and high school, that I was not living in the reality of that. So the Lord, as a sophomore in college, he came to me. He said, you need to wash in the pool. And that whole weekend, I began to struggle with the Lord. And I would say, no, Lord, not me. But eventually on the next day, on Sunday morning, he said, he said to me, he said, this joy that your experience is going to end if you don't obey. It's going to be turned off. The faucet's going to be turned off. And so I was convicted. I came to Neil. I came to David Valdez. I said, okay, brothers, baptize me. I got to get baptized. So I got baptized that day. And brothers, when I came up, the sky was bluer. The grass was greener. God was real. I was in his purpose. I would just implore you, if you have that feeling, if you have that anointing, don't delay, don't delay, rise up and be baptized, obey that anointing, go to the pool and wash away that clay. Don't keep that dirt on your face, wash that clay off so you can see brothers. This is so good. Okay. Now we have to clarify Mark 16, 16 says that belief is enough. Belief is enough not to fall into condemnation. He who believes uh, and is baptized shall be saved, but he who does not believe shall be condemned. So belief is adequate. So you, so you would not fall into eternal condemnation, but you need to then be baptized after belief for you to experience full salvation. And I know you might say, well, I got baptized when I was a baby and we're glad your parents helped baptize you, but it says you need to believe first and then be baptized. So if brothers, if you have a little anointing, do not delay. This weekend here in Austin, we'll have a, a baptismal set up under the oak trees tomorrow afternoon. So we have an opportunity for you to come publicly be baptized and receive your sight. If you're in another city, they will have some opportunity for you. Be baptized. Do not delay. Get that clay off your face. And it actually gets even more graphic in Romans in Romans 6, 3 and 4, it describes our situation. And it says that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Now, the thing is, when Christ was crucified on the cross, what happened? Our old man was crucified with him. Our old man 
became a corpse. He became a corpse. He died with Christ. What do we need to do with corpses? We need to bury them. So that's why Romans 6, 4 says, we have been buried therefore with him through baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so also we might walk in newness of life. Newness of life. Now, in uh, this book here, this is the, the book called The Normal Christian Life by Watchman Nee. It describes a very peculiar manner of capital punishment that existed at the time of the Roman Empire. And it said, at the time when the epistle to the Romans was written, a murderer was punished in a peculiar and terrible manner. The dead body of the one murdered was tied to the living body of the murderer, head to head, tied head to head, hand to hand, foot to foot. And the living one was bound to the dead one till death. The murderer could go where he pleased, but wherever he went, he had to drag the corpse of that murdered man with him. This is extremely uh, graphic, and but I think it presents a very good picture of us before baptism. After we believe our old man is a corpse tied to us, and no, no wonder you can't make any progress. You're carrying a corpse on your back, and it's rotting and stinking. Brothers, don't make an excuse anymore. Don't say, oh, but what about my parents? Oh, I'm not ready. What will the brothers think? Just be baptized. Just get that corpse in the grave. When you're baptized, you and the corpse go in, but only you come out. You leave that corpse in the grave. Okay, I just, I love this. Now, Acts 22:16 16 says, why do you delay? Here Saul of Tarsus had believed three days prior, and Ananias comes to him and says, why are you delaying? If three days of an interval between belief and baptism is too long, then anything longer than three days is too long. Don't delay. You have an opportunity coming up. Take that opportunity. Rise up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Okay, and Saul of Tarsus, actually, he was blind at that time. So he not only received the forgiveness of sins, but like this message says, we receive our sight by our baptism. We receive our sight. Okay, maybe you are baptized, and maybe you're wondering, well, what about, I have been genuinely baptized. Next is we need to daily apply the washing of baptism to the self in order to obey the anointing. So that means that when the anointing comes, the clay is there, and we, we either stand with the old man or we take the anointing to wash it off in our daily life, in the gospel, in our prophesying. We would just like to focus on two things here, our, the gospel and prophesying. And so when the anointing comes, you know, many of us, um, we're around classmates and they're a little, a little anointing comes. Talk to that person. You know, it's a little feeling. I remember being in college and walking in the hallways. So many times this feeling would come, tell them about me, tell them about me. And this is our amazing participation in the commission. But, but when the anointing comes, if you're like me, at that time, you start liking that clay on your eyes and you start having all these excuses. Oh, no, I don't know what to say. They're going to laugh at me. Oh, I'm afraid of their frown. I'm afraid of them turning me down. You know what I'm talking about. But we have to learn to stand with the anointing, to wash away that clay and to obey the anointing. Okay, so in the gospel, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to announce the gospel. Announce the gospel to the poor. 
he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to send away and release those who are oppressed. So when the anointing comes, what is it for? It's for us to announce. I want you to underline, anointed me to announce. That's what the anointing is for. It's for our announcing in the gospel. And by our announcing, other people who are blind receive their sight. Others recover their sight. This is so good. So I'll just tell you a quick story about a brother I know named Zeke. And uh, this happened um, when he was actually in a Bible school in California. And it just illustrates when you announce the gospel, uh, the sight is there. And so he was actually on his day off at a laundromat, just reading a ministry book. He was just there doing his laundry on his day off. And then he noticed across the way, there's another man doing his laundry. And the Lord started to bother Zeke, you know, you need to speak to him about me. And he started to get a little feeling, but he argued, you know, he stood with the clay. He said, oh, no, uh, you know, what am I going to say? Oh, he's got, his, he's got his kid with him. I don't want to interrupt. And, um, but anyway, he noticed he couldn't make any progress in his reading. He just kept reading the same paragraph over and over again, because that's how it is when the anointing comes. It doesn't reason with you. It doesn't explain to you. It just anoints you. It just moves in you until you obey. And let me just pause here and say, even if you don't obey the anointing, you still receive the divine impartation of Christ. That's because the, just the moving of the Spirit alone can impart something of Christ to you. But praise the Lord, we can learn to obey over time and will actually help others. So the man uh, and Zeke were there and Zeke, you know, arguing with the Lord. But eventually the man started to get up to leave and he realized, OK, I, this is my chance. I have to say something. So the man actually went out the door and he actually helped. Uh, he had two baskets and he grabbed a second basket that the man was going to bring out. He got it for him, went out the door behind him and brought it to his car. and. Uh, Zeke's thinking, okay, Lord, I'm following you. What am I going to say? And he had a feeling, just tell him that I am real. Just tell him I'm real. And so Zeke, you know, puts the laundry basket down and says, sir, I'm a Christian. And I just wanted you to know that God is real. And then he started thinking, man, that is like the lamest thing I could have said. Couldn't I have get said something better? The man stood there though, for like, a, like a long, it seemed like a long time. And he was just looking at Zeke quietly. And he said, you don't know what you just said. And then he said, I'm an atheist, and, but I've been arguing with this Christian lady at my work. And I always argue with her. And she eventually started to cry. And she eventually said, I'm going to pray that God proves to you within two weeks that he is real. And this just happened a few days ago. And then he said, are you telling me that God interrupted what you were doing and told you to come tell me that he is real? And it was like, at that moment, they both had sight. At that moment, they both believed God is real. And so Zeke, actually, he was carrying a gospel tract in his pocket. And he said, sir, God is real. Just take this and read it. And I hope you could pray the prayer on the back. And the man said, I definitely will. So you don't know. People are blind. People apart from, apart from us as the light of the world are blind. We need to go out and just obey the anointing. You don't know the preparation that God has done on his end so that when you speak just a little word, like, do you know the Lord? Do you, you know, do you know anything about Christ? That just opens the door so much. And especially now while you're in college, you have so many opportunities to open the eyes of the blind. Okay, 
And then another thing in prophesying. In prophesying, First Thessalonians 5, 19 and 20, I know how it is. In prophesying, there's a lot of people sharing, and you might think, oh, no, my portion is too little. I don't have anything important to say. I'm just going to be quiet. But First Thessalonians 5, 19, do not quench the spirit. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Something that a little, a little member might say at the end of the meeting might open the eyes of the one who needs it. The Lord knows how to direct all of our speaking for the building up. I remember many times when it's just a little sister in the back row, she says something. She follows the anointing, and I receive so much light from what, she's, from what she shares. So, so let's just learn to obey the anointing. Don't stand with the clay on your eyes. Wash that dirt off your face and help others to see, okay, this is so good. Now, let's make a little transition here to, uh, to Roman numeral 3. Let's transition to John chapter 10. And the title here is Being Shepherded Out of Religion into the Corporate Enjoyment of Christ. And so John chapter 9 and 10 are connected. They're actually kind of all about this one case of this blind man. Well, not only was he blind, but he was actually in religion. And Jesus points that out by way of a parable. So actually, I'd like to say at the beginning here, this man was not only blind physically, but he was blind spiritually. And he not only received physical sight, but he received his spiritual sight. And that's evident as you walk through John 9, you can see the man's growing awareness of who Jesus is. So I'd just like to read some of the verses here. In John 9, 11, he says, uh, so Jesus sends him to get his sight at a pool. So he and Jesus are not together. So then the man gets his sight, he's newly seeing, and his community finds him, his neighbors find him. And they say, how did you get your sight? So in John 9, 11, he says, the man called Jesus made clay. And then, you know, told me to go and wash. So to him, Jesus is a man. Well, then his community leads him to the Pharisees, the leaders. They don't lead him to Jesus. They lead him to the Pharisees, the, the religious ones. And they're interrogating him. They're wondering, how did you get your sight? Everyone's surprised by this miracle. And so then they ask him, what do you think about Jesus? He says to them, uh, he's a prophet. This is John 9, 17. In 9, 11, he's a man. In 9, 17, he says he's a prophet. And they don't believe that it actually happened that way. So they call his parents and then they ask him, tell us again, what happened? You know, it's like, tell us again, what was it? And he said, I told you already. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? So this is 927 that he indicates I'm his disciple. Do you want to become his disciples? I'm his disciple. He's worthy of me following him. The Pharisees totally reject Jesus. They say he's a sinner. We don't know where he's from. We don't know where he's from. And, but the man is vouching for the Lord, vouching for Jesus the whole time. And he's, he says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. It's obvious he's from God. He opened my eyes. So he's vouching for the Lord. And so in 33, he says he's from God. So in 11, he's a man. In 17, he's a prophet. In 27, I'm his disciple. In 33, he's from God. And then they cast him out. They cast him out. And then Jesus finds him. And these verses are on your outline. This is 9, 35 through 38. Jesus finds him and says, do you believe into the son of God? This is right after he's been cast out from their midst. And he says, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And he said, you have both seen him and he is the one speaking with you. And he says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. So in, in 38, he actually confesses Jesus is the son of God and he worships him. And to me, this is a real indicator of sight. If to you, Jesus is just a man, you are blind. 
But if you go from him being just a man to being a prophet, to being a disciple, to being from God, and eventually to being the son of God and worshiping him, you are seeing, you are seeing, you have a blessed sight. I just pray the Lord would reveal this to us again and again. Okay, now, uh, as the Lord uh, transitions to the Pharisees then, and he is teaching them, he's kind of speaking to them, he's commenting on what just happened, where he healed a blind man, the blind man was excommunicated, was cast out of the synagogue of the Jews, and he's actually going to describe it by way of a parable, a parable of sheep in a sheepfold, and the door being opened, and the shepherd leading them out to the green pasture. And so let's look at this now. The sheepfold there in verse 1, where he says, he who does not enter through the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up from somewhere else, he's a thief and robber. Well, what is that sheepfold there? That signifies the law to keep and protect God's chosen people. And so in Galatians 3.23, it says, before faith came, we were guarded under law, being shut up to the faith which was about to be revealed. So the law was given by God to protect people because of the transgressions, because of so, so much sin, God had to give the law to keep his chosen people. And he likened that to a pen, a, a fenced in area to protect the sheep. But the whole, the whole fold, the whole intention is just a temporary transitory protecting place. And once the shepherd is here, the door is supposed to open and we're supposed to go out. Yes, at some points, maybe the sheep need to be protected when there's predators or in the wintertime or at night. But when the shepherd is there, they're not supposed to remain there. It's temporary. It's temporary. Well, we all have a, our fold. We all have something in our life that God allowed us to go into. Even you could say he was the door into that for us. But now that he's here, we don't need to stay in that. But we all had something. You might just consider in your experience. For some, I know it was banned. They were so into band, and band was kind of a preserving thing for them. For others, it might have even been a religious fold. Maybe you weren't even saved, but just being in that religious system was a religious fold that kept you. For others, maybe it was their family. Their family was such a fold to protect them. We all have our fold that we're in before we meet Christ and before we're able, before we're able to see the pasture, the glorious church life. But now that the shepherd has come, the door is open. The door is open and praise the Lord. He, he brought us out of the fold. At some point in our life, you're here at this conference because the door swung open. Christ is the door for you to enter into life. And now you're able to go into the pasture. That is, you're able to go into life abundant. And what does the pasture signify? In verse 10, 10b, he says, I have come that they may have life and may have it abundantly. So the pasture is the feeding place of the sheep where we enjoy Christ as our life abundant. We enjoy divine abundant life. So I'm just so thankful for this message. And just in summary, if you think about it, this, this blind man, you start here in John 9. He's blind. He's poor. He's isolated. He's lonely. And he's in religion. But at the end of John 10, where is he? He's with the sheep. He's with the others. He's seeing. He's feasting. He's enjoying the green grass, the rich pasture. He's a happy sheep. So what this case shows us, brothers and sisters, is we go from being poor, beggars, isolated, under a kind of a system of rules, lonely, and then the Lord comes in as the shepherd. 
and he calls us by name and he knows us and he leads us out. On the one hand, this man was cast out of the Jewish synagogue, but on the other hand, the Lord as the shepherd went into that religious fold and led him out. And the Lord does that with all of us. Whatever we were in, he came in at a certain point and he led us out and he led us into the enjoyment of Christ. He led us into our community groups. He led us into the church life. He led us into the, into the glorious enjoyment, corporate enjoyment of himself as our rich life. So I hope you see this. I hope you enjoy this, this case. We were blind. We were in religion, but now we're seeing and we're feasting. We were alone, but now we're together. We were poor, but now we're rich. We now have abundant life. So I hope you would just enjoy the divine life to the uttermost. And may the Lord bless you the rest of this day. We're all feasting together.